0: My men have behaved like women, and my women like men. The words of King Xerxes, praising the warlike deeds of the valiant Queen Artemisia, while his Persian sailors failed him at the Battle of Salamis. Welcome to the Western Traditions Podcast. My name is Rob Paxton, and this is the 16th episode of The Greek Sun, a series of podcasts about ancient Greek history. Right now, we are in the middle of the Persian War. The Athenians were victorious on the plain of Marathon in 490 BC, but 10 years later, at the Pass of Thermopylae, 300 Spartans and a few thousand Greek allies were defeated soundly by the Persians. The enemy army, its numbers beyond counting, subsequently passed through the hot gates and descended upon Greece. Now today's episode will bring us to the sea battle at Salamis and the deliverance of the Athenian people. If you are enjoying this podcast, please visit my website at western-traditions.org. There you will find all of the episodes from both of the series that I have produced so far. You will also find some helpful maps and pictures as well as recommendations of some good books to read and support what you learn from these podcasts. You can also purchase merchandise on the shopping page or support the podcast directly through contributions made via PayPal or Patreon. And now, let us turn to the wine-dark sea, to Artemisium, where the fledgling Greek navy waited for the Persian fleet, while the Spartans and the other Greek allies prepared for battle at Thermopylae. The Athenians, before this war, had not been a major sea power. In fact, it is kind of surprising that really none of the Greek cities were in any way a significant presence on the waves. Yes, absolutely, there were Greeks aboard sea-going ships, there were Greek merchants, but there was no Greek navy, no Greek fleet. For that matter, there really wasn't a Persian naval presence either. For this war, the Persians had put together a fleet, yes, but much of this was done with Phoenician and Egyptian aid. The Phoenicians were the real maritime force in the eastern Mediterranean, and farther west, really. And they were mostly merchants, though I have explained in previous episodes how those well-armed sea merchants could easily turn into pirates. This seems kind of surprising, this, this Greek ignorance of the sea, in hindsight. The Greeks, just due to the geography of their homelands, seem like natural sailors, like they should have been dominating the waters all along. Indeed, today, Greece fittingly possesses the largest merchant marine in the world in terms of tons shipped. But it was not until the early 5th century BC, when Greeks apparently began to realize the importance of controlling the sea, at least with regard to the approaches to their ports. It's funny when you think about the apparent contradiction here. As is, it's as if the power to control the sea was always in Greek hands, but they never grasped that power. After all, we know the Greeks were natural island hoppers, that the Athenians and others had trade contacts with all the islands in the Aegean and with the coast of Anatolia, and they maintained colonies overseas in Italy and Sicily and even Spain. And even as far back as the Odyssey, we have mention of Menelaus making profits trading on the coast of Egypt. Yet, going into this conflict with Persia, they are the underdogs at sea. Soon, though, we will see how, even though they were outnumbered, The Greeks' natural mastery of the sea allowed their inferior numbers to inflict massive casualties on an enemy possessing much greater numbers. Anyway, as the Persians crossed into Europe prior to the battle at Thermopylae, the Greek allies had begun to put together a fleet. The Athenians, more committed than anyone to the cause, outdid everyone in terms of contributions to the allied navy. They provided 127 ships at the start. Various cities around the Isthmus and the Peloponnesus also provided ships, but Corinth was in second place in terms of quantity, and they only contributed 40 ships. So the Athenians provided the core of a fleet that came to contain 271 triremes, as the Allies considered how they would fight the Persians at sea. Herodotus tells us that there were other ships in the fleet, but he does not seem to think them worth counting. These were pentaconters, a name that refers to the 50 oars and 50 rowers that powered the ships. Such ships were among the more ancient models of seagoing vessel which had existed back during the Bronze Age and functioned both as trade and passenger vessels and as pirate ships. They were usually about 30 meters in length and obviously held at least 50 men to row it and it could hold more. These ships generally did not have decks but they usually did have a single sail The main vessel of the Greek fleet, and of the Persian, was a newer model of ship that was possibly already a century or two old by the time of the Persian War, the Trireme. Like the Pentagonter, it had a shallow draft and could be beached easily. However, this ship possessed three levels or banks of rowers. The lowest level of rowers was down at the water level. Crucially, these rowers could not see outside the ship, so their rowing had to be coordinated by deck leaders. The total rowing crew would have been 150 or more the ships also could hold additional marines in the form of hoplites or archers anywhere from 10 to 40 or more when some 270 of these vessels assembled into the allied navy and an army assembled to march to thermopylae the greeks sent that fleet to artemisium this was a point just off the northern tip of the island of euboea and generally to the east of thermopylae though history does not seem to record any idea of a coordination between the two forces on land and sea. Instead, the plan was for the Greek navy to meet the invading Persian fleet, which would probably stay close to its land army and come down that same coast, to meet the Persian fleet at Artemisium and to try to break it up, to delay it, to reduce its capacity for combat and hopefully deter it from reaching Athens and beyond. Now, command of this allied fleet was given, naturally, to a Spartan, It is interesting to note, in hindsight, that the Allies were not simply in favor of a Spartan being in command, but they likewise made it known that they would not serve if the commander were an Athenian. So disliked were the Athenians, even though they were really the core of the rebellion. Again, there was just something about these Athenians simultaneously so admirable, yet easily despised, too, for their faults. Now, a perfect living example of this combination of admirable and not-so-admirable qualities as the Allied fleet headed north in a body to Artemisium. A good example of all this was the man-appointed commander of the Athenian naval squadron, Themistocles. Themistocles was not a member of one of the elite families of Athens. He was neither an Alcmenid nor a Pisistratid. He was, in fact, from the tribe of Leontis, and he was, as the saying goes, base-born, born born from common people. Yet, Plutarch tells us, even in his youth, he purposefully mixed with high-born children at play and in his studies, suggesting that he was always a social and political climber. But he was also known to be very impetuous and opinionated, energetic as well. Themistocles did not spend his holidays from school in idleness, but instead, as Plutarch says, he was always inventing and composing orations and declamations about himself and his companions, and he was regarded by his teachers as someone who would go far in life. He had no manners, though, and he was depicted as rough with regard to etiquette. However, he dedicated himself wholeheartedly listening to anyone knowledgeable when they spoke about politics, about affairs of state. When confronted about his lack of accomplishment with any musical instrument, as his higher class companions would have certainly gained knowledge and skill with these things in school, he said that he could do nothing with a small, obscure instrument. But, he said, put the government of a small and obscure city in his hands and he would, quote, make it great and glorious, unquote. Clearly from the get-go, even as a young man of few means, Themistocles had his sights set on achieving the highest power, in the tum- and in the tumultuous and chaotic democracy of Athens, he had been born in just the right place and time to rise through the ranks and achieve his political goals. He was also known to be avaricious, and always on the lookout for a way to acquire riches. Now, Themistocles was too young to fight at Marathon, but in the decade that followed, he had many sleepless nights, thinking about the trophy of Miltiades. In other words, the glory and the power that the man had achieved. When some said that the battle at Marathon was truly the end of the war, he opined that it was just the beginning. He hoped so anyway, because he knew, as all politicians know, that social and political crises bring power to those who seek it. We have seen the same in the 21st century, as the crises of terrorism, pandemics, and war have greatly expanded both the powers of government and the submissive obedience of citizens. So it was, then, as he became a man and was heard out in the council of the city, he lobbied to stop distributing the money earned from the silver mines at Lorium. Previously, the government had been divvying up the revenue from this mine among the citizens. Now, he had argued, let us use the money to build a fleet of 100 ships and go to war against Aegina, an island in the Saronic Gulf that controlled the local seas. The money was diverted, and the fleet was built. It was never put to use against Aegina, but it became the core of the fleet that would see battle with the Persians two years later. Indeed, Themistocles was daring in that he shifted the Athenian military focus to the sea. It might seem natural to us now, in hindsight, but remember that it was Athenian hoplites, infantry, which had defeated the Persians at Marathon. The Athenians had possessed no real naval forces at the time, and the Persian fleet remained unmolested throughout that campaign. Perhaps Themistocles saw that Marathon was, for the Athenians anyway, a stroke of luck really. He saw that his city's real hope lay seaward on the waves, where they could jeopardize or even defeat the Persian fleet, and they could thus indirectly threaten the Persian army, which would be dependent on its fleet. Now, the failure of the expedition to Tempe, which I described in the last episode, and in which Themistocles had led a portion of the 10,000 men sent, the failure of this expedition prior to the battle at Thermopylae supported Themistocles' present argument for a focus on sea battle over land-based combat, And so it was that no Athenians came to Thermopylae. Instead, they formed the core of the fleet sent to Artemisium, the fleet which would encounter face to face and set battle for the first time the immense forces of King Xerxes' navy. The timeline is not exactly clear, but the Greeks would tell us that the battles at Thermopylae and Artemisium on land and sea happened at roughly the same time. Some scholars dispute this, but it makes for a lovely story to think this, and Herodotus espouses this belief as well. The Greeks arrived at Artemisium, and they quickly became aware of the incredible number of Persian ships just across the narrow sea passage at a place called Ephetae. The Greeks also learned that That more than 200 enemy ships were now circling around to their rear to entrap them. Even the Spartan commander, given this news, was inclined to retreat. It was Themistocles who lobbied and persuaded the allies to remain and fight. He knew that Athens' future and his future probably depended on this roll of the dice, on this engagement with superior forces. And he also made a little money off this stance the people of Euboea, the island to the south of Artemisium, they were fearful that the Greek fleet would retreat and leave them defenseless. So they paid Themistocles 30 talents of silver to convince the fleet to stay. Now, a talent was typically worth several years of a man's labor. It would be difficult to put this into financial terms meaningful today, but it should be obvious that simply being given 30 talents would be a lot like winning the lottery today. Now, perhaps the Euboeans thought that they were giving that money to the Athenians, or that it would be distributed to the fleet as a whole. Themistocles never let on about that, though. He kept most of the money, and bribed Eurybiades, the Spartan commander, with just five of the talents, which he presented as his own money, as if it were out of his own pocket. Then Eurybiades sided with Themistocles in the argument, and the fleet decided to stay and fight. They sailed out in the late afternoon brave and bold, the Greeks' much smaller fleet against the Persians, hoping to use the coming night and better tactics to inflict great injury on their enemy. The Persians, greatly outnumbering the Greeks, had no fear and also advanced, planning on encircling and completely destroying the Greek navy in one battle. Encircle them they did, but the Greeks were ready for this. At a signal, the Greek ships all formed a defensive circle with their bows outward and their sterns pointed inward, and then the battle was on. Soon, the Greeks had captured 30 Persian ships, as well as some high-level commanders. As night fell, the combatants disengaged, unknown to all of them, somewhere to the west, on land. The Spartans and others fought on at Thermopylae, against the greatest odds of all. Now that night, a great storm came. The Persians of the fleet present near Artemisium were dismayed by it, but their comrades in the 200 ships circling round the island of Euboea, they were devastated literally. The small Persian task force was driven into the rocks and lost entirely. This was unknown to all as the second day of battle dawned, but as the day passed, both sides, still watching the other, news reached them all of the great sinking of Persian ships, and at the same time, 53 more Greek ships arrived as reinforcements from Attica in full view of the Persian enemy. The Greeks advanced again, when it was almost evening and inflicted even more casualties on the persians they inflicted casualties on their fellow ionians too many greeks had joined the persian navy eager to show their spirit of cooperation and just as eager to share in the spoils all retreated to their anchorages at the end of the battle but the persians and their allies were once again licking their wounds and soothing their injured pride on the third day of the engagement fearful that xerxes would punish them all for failure and for their lack of bravery the persians attacked at midday herodotus tells us that they approached with their still much larger fleet in a half moon formation the battle though was a stalemate both sides drew away again at its end but the greeks had been quite roughly handled many greeks now thought that they should break their formation and retreat Wounds and damaged ships, they opined, would prevent them from presenting a full battle ready fleet the next day. And it was on the next day that news arrived of the death of Leonidas and of the Spartans and the other Greeks at Thermopylae. This shattered the already shaky confidence of the Greeks. They immediately sailed away in order, with the Athenians bringing up the rear. But before the Athenians left, Themistocles left messages carved onto various rocks on the shore at Artemisium. The inscriptions were pleas to their fellow Ionian Greeks, those who sailed with the Persians, pleas to these fellow Greeks not to carry on the war against their brothers. Explicitly, the messages asked the Ionians to either turn against their masters or remove themselves from any combat encounter. The intent, according to Herodotus, was on its surface to convince some of these forces serving with the Persians to betray their cause and to lessen the coming blow against Athens. More subtly though, Themistocles knew that the Persians themselves would encounter these inscriptions and, at the very least, lose trust in their Greek servants. Themistocles may not have been the first general to practice psyops, but he is probably the first one recorded to do so. Now, the Persian fleet delayed in pursuing the Greeks they were coordinating with Xerxes, who had just sent word of his hard-fought victory at Thermopylae to his naval forces. At this time, Xerxes received into his army some Greeks who had, desert- who had deserted from Arcadia, a realm in the middle of the Peloponnesus. He sought some intelligence from them, and one of his men asked these Arcadians what the Greeks on the other side of the conflict were doing now, as the great army turned south towards them. The Arcadians told the great king that their fellow Greeks were holding the Olympic Games, contests of athleticism, in which the grand prize was an olive wreath. The Persians marveled that the Greeks would struggle so hard to win such a meager reward, all the while a massive enemy army threatened their total destruction. Wherever they went, the Persians sacked and burned opposing cities. They plundered temples, raped women, and made themselves masters of all they saw. Xerxes split the army in two. The larger portion he led through Boeotia, a little more peacefully because the Boeotians had, for the most part, submitted to him already, but they leveled cities like Thespia and Plataea, whose soldiers had fought at Thermopylae and whose inhabitants had now fled to the Peloponnesus. The lesser force of the Persian army turned more southwesterly, charged with bloodlust, revenge, and avarice toward the Oracle at Delphi. The Greek fleet sailed south from Artemisium and rounded into the Saronic Bay and anchored mostly at Salamis, a large island just off the coast of Athens and within its territorial control. The Athenian ships themselves repaired to Athens to assist in the exodus from the city. Men, women, children, and as many belongings as they could manage all fled to different parts. Some fled to the island of Aegina but most traveled across the bay to Trozen, a city in the Peloponnesus, and the birthplace of Theseus. A significant portion, though, many of the Athenians took the short trip across the sea passage to Salamis, which is close enough to be seen from the Athenian mainland. They were encouraged to flee, obviously, by the report that Xerxes and his army approached, but also they had learned that the Spartans were not going to march out to battle that they were going to stay behind the nearly finished wall on the Isthmus of Corinth and await the Persians there. But again, legend also lent itself to the Athenians' decision. According to Herodotus, the Athenians believed that a large serpent lived in the temple on their Acropolis. This serpent, every month, was said to consume the honey cake left in offering for it. But now the priestess, who oversaw the temple, had told the populace that the honey cake offering for the first time ever had not been consumed, and that the serpent had abandoned the temple. Thus, many Athenians were inclined to also abandon their home. Not all, though, not all Athenians left. A small remnant remained in the city, in the Acropolis. Some were simply too poor to flee. Others believed until the end that the walls of this citadel would save them, according to their interpretation of the prophecy. They did not. In the fourth month since their passing over into Europe, the troops of Xerxes' army entered the city. They camped upon the hill of Ares near the citadel. They besieged the Acropolis and shot burning arrows into it, setting fire to the revered wooden wall and the buildings it was meant to protect. Still, the besieged fought on, refusing to listen to the pleas of their fellow Athenians, the Pisistratid family, who cooperated with the Persians and who begged the doomed men, women, and children in the citadel to surrender offering them generous terms. These hopeless ones fought on, rolling stones down upon the Persians who tried to scale the steep approach to the summit. Finally, though, a handful of Persians climbed secretly to a point unwatched atop the walls and rushed to seize and open the gate. The Persians flooded in. Some Athenians threw themselves down from the high walls to their death below. Others fled in fear to the temple, where the Persians found them and slaughtered them. The Greek fleet gathered at Salamis and the exiles now living there could all see the city of Athens burning on the eastern horizon. The fleet was reinforced now by additional ships coming in from all cities in the Alliance they numbered now in total 327 triremes, as well as an uncounted number of penteconters, the older model of ship with its 50 oars and single sailing mast. A council of commanders decided then to leave Salamis, to take the fleet to the Isthmus and fight the Persian navy there, as the Greek army defended the wall that they had nearly finished building. The day was already growing dark when a discouraged Themistocles met with the Spartan Eurybiades aboard his vessel, Eurybiades, remember, commanded the whole fleet. Themistocles, inspired by the remarks of a fellow sailor in the fleet, suggested to Eurybiades that the fleeing Greek ships would probably not fight at all after they left Salamis, that they would most likely scatter to their homes and leave all Greece defenseless against the sea assault. Eurybiades may not have agreed with this, but he did agree for a last-minute council. Reconvened at this night council, the collected captains heard out Themistocles, these were his words. At the isthmus, you will fight on an open sea, which is greatly to our disadvantage, since our ships are heavier and fewer in number than the enemies, And furthermore, you will lose Salamis, Megara, and Aegina, even if all the rest goes well with us. The land and sea force of the Persians will advance together, and your retreat will draw them toward the Peloponnese and bring all Greece into peril. If you do as I advise, these are the advantages which you will secure. We shall fight in a narrow sea, with few ships against many, and we shall gain a great victory, for to fight in a narrow space is favorable to us. When men counsel reasonably, reasonable success ensues, but when in their counsels they reject reason, God does not choose to follow the wanderings of human fancies." A Corinthian captain stood at this point and lambasted Themistocles as a man with no city to whom they should not bother listening. Surely this stung in the ears of all Athenians gathered there. They were all, indeed, men with no city. Even as they deliberated, Athens glowed, burning on the horizon. In the end, though, Eurybiades decided to stay, probably, according to Herodotus, because Themistocles also said that the Athenians would not go to the Isthmus, that they would gather their families and sail away to Italy, taking with them most of the ships and the Greeks' most capable sailors. The next morning, there was an earthquake, noticeable on land and sea. In response to this omen, the Greeks prayed to all the gods and even sent a ship to the nearby isle of Aegina to retrieve idols that would bolster their worship. Those among the Persian forces had their own supernatural moment. Demeritus, exiled king of Sparta, who rode into Greece with the Persian army, noticed that a dust cloud seemed to be rising in the direction of Eleusis the Athenians' most sacred temple, and the location of the mystery rites. Demeritus' companion at that time com- commented that the dust cloud was like that rising up behind a great army of tens of thousands of soldiers. They also both heard distant singing that resonated like the mystic hymn to Dionysius. This was a hymn sung every year by the Athenians in praise of, quote, the mother and the daughter, unquote, according to Herodotus. The dust cloud rose into the air and billowed through the skies in the direction of the Greek fleet at Salamis. The watching Greeks took it as a portent of doom for Xerxes, and victory for the Greeks. In the meantime, the Persian fleet finally arrived, taking station at Phalerum, not far from the Piraeus, the port of Athens. Joined now by Xerxes and the other commanders, the leaders of the Persian forces all held council. Here in the text, Herodotus gives great room to a speech made by one Artemisia, queen over various cities and islands on or near the coast of Anatolia, among them Halicarnassus, Herodotus's hometown. Artemisia had come to power essentially as a regent when her husband the king died and left behind a son too young to wield power. In her speech, Artemisia first recounts her own valor in recent battles, perhaps in order to garner respect for what she is about to say. Here is an excerpt. Spare your ships, and do not risk a battle. These people are as superior to yours in seamanship as men are to women. Are you not already master of Athens? Is not Greece subject to you? The Greeks cannot hold out against you very long. Essentially, Artemisia espouses what will be in hindsight clearly the best route for the Persians to simply wait out the Greeks and let internal divisions and lack of supplies destroy them. Xerxes appreciated her wisdom, but he ultimately agreed with the greater number of commanders that they must attack as soon as possible. So as night fell, the Persian fleet formed and advanced toward Salamis. Simultaneously, the army of the Persians began to move out from Athens and advance toward the Isthmus to give battle to the Greeks who had built a defensive wall there. Again, men throughout the Greek forces, especially those from the Peloponnesus, those in the fleet, began to mutter and grumble about staying in so forward a position just to defend a landless people. And now Themistocles, who feared that the Peloponnesians would convince the fleet to sail away or to scatter, did something unexpected, something that will remain controversial for all of history, but something that was also very characteristic of the man. That night, Themistocles sent one of his own slaves on board a merchant ship to the Persians. The slave was brought before the leaders of the Persian fleet and told them that Themistocles was secretly on the side of the Persians, that he was an admirer of Xerxes, and that he wished the Persians to be victorious. Furthermore, he warned that the Greeks were about to escape, and that they were greatly divided over the matter, and that if the Persians acted quickly, they could trap and destroy the Greek fleet at Salamis once and for all. Then the slave departed the way he had come. The Persians acted on this news immediately. In the darkness, they moved their ships to block the southern exit from the Bay of Eleusis, the body of water where the Greek fleet lay anchored between Athens and Salamis, To the west, they sent an Egyptian squadron to block the western exit from the same bay. They also landed a body of infantry on the islet of Citeleia, near the Piraeus, to further aid the fleet in trapping the Greeks. Unknowing of these developments, the Greek commanders continued in strife amongst themselves, undecided still about what to do. At this time, there appeared at Salamis another great man of history. His name was Aristides, and he is remembered sometimes today by the epithet Aristides the Just. Plutarch, rather than Herodotus, provides us with some details about this Aristides. He was from the tribe Antiochus, another of the ten tribes of Athens. There is division over whether he was born into one of the poorer or wealthier families of that tribe, but it is known that, as a young man, he had been a friend of Cleisthenes, the Alcmenid tyrant who had guided Athens through some of its stormiest political years at the end of the 6th century BC. But also it was known that Aristides had been an adversary of Themistocles all his life. Now, There are semi-legendary stories about the two men being in contention even as young boys, but Themistocles and Aristides were definitely political foes. From our hindsight lens, we could probably characterize Aristides as representing the more aristocratic political perspective, and Themistocles more as a populist. But Aristides is also remembered, as his epithet shows, that he's also remembered for being more concerned about justice than political maneuvering. Aristides had been leader of his tribe's forces at the Battle of Marathon. After the battle, troops from nine of the tribes returned quickly overland to defend Athens against a possible Persian landing. Aristides, already regarded as eminently trustworthy, was left with the troops of his tribe to guard the treasure and the prisoners that they had seized in the battle. In the years after that battle, Aristides was active in Athenian politics, just as Themistocles was, and he was usually, they were in opposition to each other. In fact, in the year 482, Aristides opposed the diversion of funds from the silver mines at Laurium. Recall that Themistocles wanted to use the profits from the mine to build a fleet. Aristides had opposed this move, even though it was eventually successful, and this earned him such en- enmity from the men on the other side of the political isle that they banished him. Now, the proper term for this form of exile in Athens was ostracism. We have acquired this term in English from the Greek word ostracon, which meant a pottery shard. When the members of the Athenian assembly got their blood up and wanted to banish someone from their city, they wrote the name of the man to be banished on these shards and turned them in as votes. As in most any democracy, a majority of the votes possible would win the case, and thus a man would become ostracized. After the vote, he was forced to leave the city, sometimes for five or ten years, but it could be longer. However, Once the army of Xerxes had defeated the Spartans and the other Greeks at Thermopylae, and the fleet had returned home, the Athenians had wisely canceled many of these ostracisms. They didn't want to encourage all those exiles to join the Persians. This had already happened to some extent, as I have already mentioned the family of the Pisistratids, as among the many Persian sympathizers in Greece. At this moment, though, when the fate of the nation hung in the balance, and only the questionably patriotic Themistocles seemed to be lobbying for the tactical advantage at Salamis, just then Aristides arrived amid the discord. He went straight to Themistocles, and spoke with him in private. Themistocles, let us lay aside our vain and childish contention. Let us vie for the preservation of Greece, you in the ruling and the commanding, and I in the subservient and advising part. So Aristides submitted to Themistocles' leadership knowing that this was the best man for the moment, even if he had disagreed with him in so many things before. Aristides put Greece before his politics. Aristides then revealed to his nemesis that he had only just managed to make it through to the fleet because the Persians had sealed off all the exits to the bay. The Greek fleet, he told Themistocles, was surrounded. Aristides urged his personal enemy to tell this to the gathered commanders. Themistocles confessed to his own part in this development, but he deferred to Aristides, assuming that they would all believe this news better from the lips of one known for his integrity. So the two former enemies then became allies during the subsequent council of ship's captains. Many leaders were unhappy with the way the things had played out, but there was now no other decision to make. They were surrounded. The allies were now truly united and forced to act in unison if any of them wanted to survive. In the last hours, some semblance of hope arrived as well. Two Greek ships deserted from the Persian armada and came over to the Allies, bringing with them some valuable intelligence about the enemy. With these two, the Greeks now counted 380 triremes for the upcoming battle. The fate of Greece would be decided when morning broke. gathered at dawn the men of the greek fleet listened to speeches the best of which according to herodotus was that of themistocles he compared and contrasted all that was noble and all that was base and he urged his comrades to choose always the noblest actions and then they put to sea and the barbarians attacked immediately the greeks for the most part began to back water till they had nearly reached the shores from which they had launched One story about the battle tells us that a phantom woman, curiously not identified with any particular goddess of the Greeks, just some phantom woman, appeared to Greeks on every ship and chided them for retreating from battle. An Athenian ship finally ventured forth and gave battle. The other Greeks followed in support, and the naval engagement quickly descended into the chaos of general combat. The barbarians, as Herodotus calls them, were noticeably confused. The Greeks, according to this same historian, fought in order, in an organized fashion. Presumably, he means by this the use of signals or some central command. The Persians, they fought without a plan. This is another theme that we will see repeated throughout military history, from this point until the present day. Small, organized, and disciplined forces generally overperform when facing large, unorganized forces and Near Eastern Empires, like the Persian Empire, tended to rely on very large, but very conglomerate land forces. In the case of the Persian army, yes, there were disciplined troops at the heart of it. The 10,000 Immortals, the Persian Cavalry, these were all particularly feared, but the rest of the army was, in essence, just a confused mob of armed men, from wide-ranging lands, speaking different tongues, and having different personal, cultural, and military goals when they marched, when they fought, and when they were victorious. The persian fleet was in some respects even worse in terms of organization because there was no real core of troops around which the others might center there was an egyptian squadron a phoenician squadron and a medley of squadrons from other nations including the persians but the persian contribution to the fleet as even the persians would comment later was commanded by men mostly accustomed to fighting on land regardless Salamis, as a battle, is treated in much the same way as Marathon in the history of Herodotus. There is much build-up to the actual event, but the battle is over in a handful of paragraphs. Herodotus notes that Queen Artemisia, seeing quickly that the Greeks were about to rout the Persians, turned and fled, her departure so violent that her ship sunk another ship from the same Persian fleet while making her way to safety. The Persian casualties were great. And although Herodotus does not give us numbers here, he does mention that another of Xerxes' brothers, one of the fleet commanders, was killed in the battle. Also, Aristides, the political opponent of Themistocles, landed a force on the small island which the Persians had fortified and slew every man there. Though Plutarch states that Aristides actually spared the more important Persians as valuable prisoners. As the defeat became obvious, the ships of the Persian fleet, one by one, began to turn away and flee, Many were caught by the Greek squadron from the island of Aegina, which had been placed to attack any fleeing ships, and thus multiplied the destruction inflicted. The sailors from these ships inflicted higher casualties than any other squadron, though the Athenians held a strong second place to them in terms of aggression and effectiveness in the battle. The narrative paints a picture of the many Persian shipwrecks, their debris floating away over the waves and beaching on the shores of Attica. Remember, though, that the Persians were still victorious on land and in possession of Athens. Now, without giving us a timeline, Herodotus states that Xerxes immediately intended to flee, but wanted to deceive the Greeks at first, and so began building a mound to cross the channel from Athens to Salamis. The idea here is one that we will see other times also in ancient warfare in which an army on the mainland attacks a nearby island by pushing earth and timber and stone into the sea and literally building a, a road, a land ridge to the island. It's an incredible feat, but these ancient armies did accomplish it more than once. It was only a head fake though this time. Soon the Persian troops abandoned the project and began marching away. The navy had already dispersed. Xerxes was terrified that the victorious Greeks would attack his bridges at the Hellespont, what we call the Dardanelles Strait today, and trap his massive land army in Europe. There was much discussion in the Persian high command about what to do next. In the end, Xerxes agreed with Mardonius, and he left that general in charge of 300,000 of the best troops from the Persian army to act as a garrison in Europe, while the remnants of the army and the navy re- returned to safety in Asia as quickly as possible. Meanwhile, The Greeks had to deal with the consequences of victory and its opportunities. Initially, Themistocles argued that they should sail to the Hellespont immediately and destroy the king's bridge, trap the Persian army, and destroy it. I suppose they could have counted on starvation and internal divisions to do most of the work. But others in council convinced Themistocles that it would not be a good idea to trap such a large body of foreign troops in Europe and make them desperate. This quintessential Athenian finally agreed to that plan, but he also sent another private messenger to Xerxes, explaining that it was his, Themistocles, idea to allow the Persians to escape. Themistocles, you see, had his eye on the future. Like any Athenian politician, he was subject to the possibility of exile at any time that the political winds turned against him. Aristides, for example, had only just returned from his own exile. Themistocles planned ahead, hoping to prepare a place for himself in the Persian court, should the Athenians tire of him in the future. As it turned out, he would someday need this refuge in Persia. Not now, though. Now, Themistocles was triumphant. Having decided not to pursue the Persians, the Greeks now attacked the island of Andros, which had failed to pay a certain sum of money in support of the war effort. While the Greeks besieged the city of that island, Themistocles sent threatening messages to various other islands, promising that his army would visit them soon unless they paid. So Themistocles turned military victory into personal financial gain in the aftermath of the battle at Salamis. Mardonius stayed in Greece with a strong force of 300 soldiers, but Xerxes' own troops did not fare all that well on the trip back to Asia. Many starved, traveling back through land already looted for provisions on their way into the country. And there was a long wait at the straits, because the bridge of ships that Xerxes had made to cross over into Europe originally, both of them had been destroyed anyway by another great storm. It had not been necessary, after all, for the Greeks to carry out this destruction. The fleet slowly ferried the Persian army across to Anatolia, where many of the men, who had nearly starved already, ended up overfeeding on the fresh supplies waiting for them there, and they died anyway. Herodotus records a strange tale about Xerxes' personal return to Asia. He says that Xerxes did not return via the straits, but set sail with his bodyguards and entourage sometime before that and traveled directly in a Phoenician ship. During the passage, a storm threatened the ship, and the helmsman, the one who steered the ship, informed the king that the ship would only be saved if it lost some of its passengers, who were too numerous. Xerxes told his troops then that to preserve his safety, they would have to throw themselves overboard. And they did, and they died. But his ship made it through to the other shore. Having arrived safely, the story goes, Xerxes awarded the helmsman who had suggested the removal of the passengers he awarded this man with a golden crown for saving the life of the king then though because the man had also caused the death of so many fine persians xerxes ordered the man to be decapitated an interesting story not too valuable in terms of real historical value but perhaps its preservation shows us just how the greeks thought of the persians and their culture anyway the greek siege at the island of andros ultimately failed but the fleet moved on to the isle of Charistus and laid waste to it, and then returned to Salamis to divide up the combined booty from their victories over the Persians and the islanders. Themistocles and Eurybiades, the Spartan, were among the most highly acclaimed and rewarded troops. Themistocles made a point of traveling to Sparta with Eurybiades afterward, especially so that he might receive an additional prize. The Spartans gave Themistocles a beautiful new chariot, and 300 Spartan knights escorted him as an honor guard to their border. It was the one and only time that the Spartans gave such an honor to a stranger, as they called all foreigners, even their fellow Greeks. But perhaps they were eager to see him go. Now, you may have noticed that I skipped over one detail, left one event unexplained. Do you recall how Xerxes, before attacking Athens, had split his army in two and sent the lesser body to sack the oracle at Delphi? Well, the Delphians were aware of the army approaching, and all the inhabitants of the area fled into hiding, except for some 60 men, according to Herodotus, and the prophet of the the temple, whose name was Aseretus. All these remained at the oracle. The prophet, as the Persians grew near, noticed that sacred armor from the inner confines of the temple armor which it was forbidden for anyone to touch, this armor now lay inexplicably on the ground in front of the temple. And as the Persians entered the environs and reached the temple of Athena, a sudden thunderstorm burst overhead, sundering two great ridges from the nearby Mount Parnassus, and the subsequent avalanche of stone and earth killed many of these troops. At the same time, an unexplained war cry came forth from the temple. The frightened Persians fled in response and the Delphians who had hidden themselves now emerged and attacked the fleeing troops as did, according to legend, two giant armed men, the ghosts of ancient local heroes who materialized and led the Greeks in the rout. The Greeks were victorious all around but by no means free. A huge capable army remained in Boeotia to the north where Mardonius had rallied the Persian forces. It would take another battle a face-to-face confrontation with that army to finally remove the Persian menace from the Greek homeland. I will tell of that final chapter in the struggle for Greek freedom in the next episode. Until then, I thank you for listening to the Western Traditions Podcast.